Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is all about stuff in the ground, or as the professionals like to call it, archaeology. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this little walk through the archives, both ours and the archives of all humanity. It works on both levels. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. All right, well, apparently I'm going on a little bit of a theme today because this one is also about Rome. Rome's Colosseum is getting a retractable floor. What? Yeah. So this is like a pool cover? Sorry. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So uh, the Italian government, generally speaking, has decided that they want to bring back the Colosseum, not just as a tourist destination, but as a modern venue for concerts and theatrical productions. So currently, the biggest roadblock to that is that the amphitheater has no floor. The article was fascinating because I have two images in my mind of the Colosseum, right? So one is, of course, the classic picture of the outside as it looks today with these crumbling columns and everything. Mm-hmm. And then the second is the sort of reimagined version of the inside as shown in movies like Gladiator, right? You've got this mm-hmm. sandy floor. Mm-hmm. But the article has a picture of the inside as it looks today, which I had never seen. And it's very different from the place where Russell Crowe was standing all bloody in. The stands <laughs> are sort of what you would expect, right? These concentric circles of stepped bleachers. But then in the center, instead of this big field of sand where the lions can eat people, it keeps going down. And the bottom is sort of like a labyrinth with all these walls and hallways and things. And basically what you're looking at are the various rooms and chambers that were underneath Mm -hmm. the original flooring, which was apparently made of something less sturdy than stone and disintegrated over the centuries. The article doesn't say what the original floor was made of. And I'm actually really curious because one of the little side facts that they mentioned was that in ancient times, the Romans would sometimes flood the central arena with water to stage naval battles with real floating ships. What? And structurally, I know. I was like, this is a really important detail. Why have I never heard this before? Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, like structurally, it seems like a huge amount of weight to be placing over the living quarters of your entire gladiator team. Yeah. And like somehow it was watertight and they also had to have had an irrigation system to fill it and a drainage system to get it back to normal. I'm like, there's a whole article I want to read right there. <laughs> yes. How they pulled off these feats of engineering. But that is not this article, unfortunately. <laughs> um, this article is about how the Coliseum has been without a floor for about a thousand years. And if they want to have concerts there, they're going to have to put one back in. But the rooms underneath are a part of the historical appeal, too, and they want them to remain accessible. So the current director of the Coliseum, Alfonsina Russo, is requesting bids for a retractable flooring system that can be rolled out for performances, but then brought back in when it's time to show the tourists and the historians what's underneath. Hmm. They also say they anticipate a market for tourists who want to step down onto the new floor and see the Coliseum from the perspective of the gladiators who fought there. So, you know, I can see it's kind of cool. It's definitely not going to be historically accurate. Right. But it might be kind of neat to have both versions. If you're going to be updating the place anyway and trying to use it for modern, Mm -hmm. as a modern concert venue, which feels 
destructive. I'm yeah, not sure. that just mm-hmm. feels like a way that they're trying to monetize something that, to my understanding, is already bringing in a fair amount of cash. I mean, not only to people, you know, coming to Rome, but also to see that specifically. So I don't know. I'm feeling yeah. dubious about this because it feels like it's going to be like a Back to the Future Part Two reconstruction of the past, but with an obviously modern <laughs> lens. And so there are going to be little things that we get wrong in an effort to try to bring it to life and. I guess that's just how history evolves over time. Yeah. yeah. I bet they won't even flood it with water. <laughs> no, they probably won't. Well, they could do like a Cirque du Soleil show there, though, if they did. That would be awesome. Oh, yeah. That's that true. Yeah, that's cool. true. I will say, in case any of our listeners happen to run giant construction companies, they are accepting proposals from firms <laughs> worldwide. Proposals must be submitted by February 1st, and work is expected to get underway next year and be completed by 2023. And the Italian government will be subsidizing the project with a grant of 10 million euros or about 12 million dollars. Wow. So they're serious nice. about this. Yeah. They, they want to, you know, bring it into the modern age. Yeah, maybe I'll go see a show there. I don't know. It might be good. <laughs> like some stand up in the center of the Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see Ariana Grande in a historically relevant cultural center. Why not? Absolutely. <laughs> Next link. Next link. link. Well, a hidden Egyptian handbook has revealed even more secrets of mummification. Wow. Oh, we're getting better at it? We're going to be able to fully mummify things soon? Finally, we can do it. (laughs) Who knows? This may come back into fashion again. But um, there's an article on New Atlas that is letting us know that a 3,500-year-old Egyptian medical text is now shedding new light on the ancient practice of mummification. It was only recently discovered inside a much larger work, and the papyrus document being studied by University of Copenhagen is the oldest known mummification manual. Hmm. So we know some of the basics, right? It was a process that was partly practical and partly ritual. They purified the body, internal organs were removed. Most of us remember about the brain being extracted through the nose with a hook. That is one salient detail I will yeah, never is, unlearn. <laughs> is that true? Because that was always the detail that stuck with me too. I was like, how would you yeah. manage that? That seems... <laughs> impossible, but also really cool if they could do it. Yeah, this article is not poo-pooing that. It is including it as a thing that we know. Yeah, and we knew that they would store organs in special jars that were interred with the body, but there were still many details of the process that are not well known. This is because, like many crafts, knowledge was passed down orally through (laughs) apprenticeship. And on top of that, mummification was a sacred undertaking, and the priests were really guarded about their secrets. So until recently, there were two known manuals on mummification, but they were more like memory aids to ensure details were carried out properly, kind of like a Cliff Notes or something like that. Like, oh, you know, okay. Just... Yeah, a little bulleted list, but not actual <laughs> detailed instructions. Exactly. But this new Copenhagen study is based on a third mummification manual that's older than the previously known text by about a thousand years, and it Whoa. has way more details included about the process and it has recipes and how to use different types of bandages. And it also includes details on a new practice we've discovered, which is placing a piece of red linen over the deceased's face. Hmm. It sounds kind of like, meh, yeah, they put a piece of red linen over the face. But we now have a list of ingredients for a remedy that consisted largely of plant-based aromatic substances and binders that are cooked into a liquid with which the embalmers coat a piece of red linen. And then the red linen is then applied to the dead person's face in order to encase it in a protective cocoon of fragrant and antibacterial matter 
and they would repeat this at four-day intervals, I guess, to keep it quote-unquote fresh. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So this papyrus is scheduled to be published in 2022 by the Louvre Museum and the Papyrus Carlsberg Collection, which own the two halves of the document. (laughs) Don't know how that happened, but at least they're working together. It's a shared custody situation. (laughs) They failed Solomon's tasks. Right, right, right. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Heritage Daily. It's called Who Were the Sea People? And yeah, I'll be honest, as a little preface to this, I walk around feeling like I'm pretty smart, right? Like I got my nice little (laughs) well-rounded liberal arts degree. I'm actively interested in history. And while I certainly don't claim to be an expert on most things, I usually have at least a sense of my blind spots, right? Like I know what it is Mm -hmm. I don't know. Sure. Not this time. (laughs) Yeah. This article made me feel so dumb. It was really embarrassing. (laughs) So it's, it starts in familiar territory, right? So during the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age, there was apparently a widespread simultaneous collapse of civilizations across the Near East, Aegean, Anatolia, North Africa, the Caucasus, the Balkans, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Historians Whoa. describe this period as the worst disaster in ancient history. And there are various theories behind the collapse because we really don't know, right? There was written records back then, but it's very, very old. Mm -hmm. Possibilities are environmental factors, right? There could have been a drought. There could have been a volcano eruption. Or it could have been social, right? If there was a sudden technological change in warfare or maybe a Cold War situation where, like, major trade routes were disrupted. Or it might have been the elusive sea people. (gasps) Right. And so I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, an ancient civilization I've never heard of. This is going to be good, right? So here's where we start going off the rails. Whatever the cause was, it ended the Hittite Empire, the Mycenaean kingdoms, the Kassites, the Ugarit, the Amorite states, and the palace economy of the Aegean. Right. So now I'm thinking like, oh, I've heard of some of those, but several of those civilizations are completely new to me. Yeah. Which is great. Very interesting. So the written record from this time is pretty sparse. But many of these collapsed civilizations contain some reference right around that time to a seafaring people or an unknown invader. And a research paper by historian Matthew J. Adams notes hundreds of possible references to them throughout the area. Right. There was definitely somebody out there attacking from the sea. And it's Hmm. unusual that nobody knew who these guys were already, because like I mentioned, there were trade routes, there was written language. All of these civilizations had a pretty good sense of who their neighbors were. And pretty much nobody knew who these random sea bandits were who kept coming in and just destroying them. It was Eustace. Right. (laughs) Honestly, this is about that same time it could have been. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So one ancient Egyptian narrative from the reign of Ramses III records waves of invasions by seafaring peoples. And one of the battles was even depicted on his Medinet Habu Mortuary Temple in Thebes, where Ramses III is shown forcing back the invaders during the Battle of the Delta around 1175 B.C. Oh, no, hang on. B.C., not A.D. Never mind. Nowhere near Eustace's time. (laughs) (laughs) I was totally wrong about that. So, and the inscription in the temple simply calls them the northern countries, as in, now the northern countries, which were in their isles, are quivering in their bodies. Their nostrils have ceased to function. His majesty has gone forth like a whirlwind against them, fighting on the battlefield like a runner. The dread of him and the terror of him have entered in their bodies. They are capsized and their weapons are scattered in the sea. Oof. Yeah. Wow. But the reason it's inscribed in his tomb is because it's a rare instance where the Egyptians actually won the battle. The majority of the battles against the sea people they lost. 
Most of them indicate quite brutal losses, such as a narrative from the reign of Ramses II, when, quote, the unruly warriors came boldly sailing in their warships from the midst of the sea, none being able to withstand them. So this is the point where I collapsed into a puddle of stupidity, because though (laughs) historians have never figured out who the sea people were, there are some theories. And the Egyptian texts in particular name nine ancient civilizations that they thought might have been responsible. The Denyen, the Ekwesh, the Luka, the Peliset, the Shekelesh, the Sherdan, the Teresh, the Tjeker, and the Weshesh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah I can't yeah. even, like, place the nomenclature. Like, is that Middle East? No, it can't be because it's seafaring. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and these may all be, like, the Egyptian names for those civilizations, mm. so who knows what mm-hmm. they really were. But the fact is, I've never heard of any of them, and yet yeah. every single one was apparently large enough and advanced enough to make the Egyptians think that they potentially had a massive seafaring army that could take out everyone else in the area. Holy cat. The Egyptians themselves barely made it out alive. If the Egyptians had lost, we might just, you know, be learning all about the Ekwesh history of the great civilization right. and not even have ever heard of the Egyptian. Be like, Egyptian? What is that weird word? Like, it's wow. just, yeah, there's so <laughs> much out there that we just, somebody knows, apparently, but not me. I I had never heard of any of these guys. So Amazing. And that remains a mystery. You know, we still don't have any idea who the sea people were, other than the fact that everybody at the time was terrified of them. (laughs) Some modern theories have sort of, you know, they might have been like the Etruscans. They might have come from the south of Europe, right? They might have been scary white people. But yeah, I I like to think that maybe they still exist. It's sort of like the human version of Bigfoot. Like the sea people might show up. I mean, have we Atlantis, right? Like that didn't come up once in your article? Not in this article, but I I think it was an oversight, frankly. They should have mentioned it. I think they were probably very intentional about like, do not mention Atlantis. Right, right, right. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Vice.com. It's titled, Scientists Have Unlocked the Secrets of the Ancient Antikythera Mechanism. Oh. If you're not familiar, the Antikythera Mechanism was discovered off a Greek island in the Aegean Sea in the early 1900s. The object is actually a highly sophisticated astronomical calculator that dates back more than 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And since its recovery from the shipwreck in 1901, generations of researchers have marveled over its stunning complexity, earning its reputation as the world's first known analog computer. The device's gears and displays cumulatively demonstrated the motions of the planets and the sun, the phases of the lunar calendar, the position of the zodiac constellations, and even the timing of athletic events such as the ancient Olympic Games. And while some of the calculator's mysteries may have been solved over the past century, scientists at University College London's Antikythera research team present for the first time a radical new model that matches all the data and culminates in an elegant display of the ancient Greek cosmos, according to a study published on Friday in Scientific Reports. So Adam Wojcik, a materials scientist at UCL and a co-author of the study in a call, says this is such a special device. It's just so out of this world given what we know or knew about contemporary ancient Greek technology. It's unique and there's nothing else that remotely approaches it for centuries or maybe a millennia afterwards. Yeah, because you also got to think like this probably wasn't the only one. Like what are the odds that they had this one magical device and it got shipwrecked and sunk and then preserved and brought up again? 
Like, they could have had so much more knowledge that we just don't know about because this happens to be the one thing we've found. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's the evidence of, like, Mesopotamian batteries that worked mm-hmm. in pots. They were essentially able to, like, store electrical charge and things like that. Like, there's so much that we're starting to come around and respect more and more. Mm-hmm. But I think the early 2000s was very much a time of, like, oh, you know, those dumbass Greeks. Like, they didn't know <laughs> anything back then. That's right. They wore togas. How smart could they be? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And meanwhile, we have to wear clothes because we ruined our climate. But enough about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So understanding the clockwork instrumentation of the Antikythera mechanism has been a longstanding challenge for scientists because only a third of the artifacts survived its multi-millennia entombment under the Mediterranean waves. The remains of the calculator include 82 fragments, some of which contain complex gears and once-hidden inscriptions, Hmm. which were wedged between front and back display faces during the bygone era in which the artifact was fully intact. In particular, the use of surface imaging and high-resolution X-ray tomography on the artifact revealed scores of never-before-seen inscriptions that helpfully amount to a user's guide of the mechanism. Oh, that's convenient. Yeah. Now, Freeth and his colleagues believe they have tackled the missing piece of the puzzle, the complicated gearworks underlying the front Cosmos display of the calculator. So this new paper has synthesized other people's work and dealt with all the loose ends and the uncomfortable nuances that other people just ignored. Mm. For example, there are certain features in the surviving bits, holes and pillars and things like that, which people have said, well, we'll just ignore that in our explanation. There must be a use for that, but we don't know what it is, so we'll just ignore it. And so what Adam's team has done is they've just ignored nothing. And the enigmatic pillars and holes all of a sudden make sense in our solution. It all comes together and it fits the inscriptional evidence. Wow. So the inscriptions from the 2006 study suggest that the missing Cosmos display was a moving set of rings charting out the motion of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, each represented by a small gem, along with the path of the Sun, the phases of the Moon, and the positions of the Zodiac constellations. So in addition to studying these inscriptions, the researchers created computer simulations and partial replicas of the device to test out their novel model. One of the biggest hints emerged from analysis conducted in 2016 that revealed inscriptions in the front cover that included a pair of values 462 years and 442 years, which the mechanism's makers associated with Venus and Saturn. The researchers were able to identify a possible source for these numbers derived from the work of the pre-Socratic philosopher Parmenides. And these values are ancient Greek calculations of the synodic periods of the planets, meaning they represent the time it takes for planets to return to the same apparent position in the sky as viewed from Earth, according to the study. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because Venus, I think, even from a geocentric period, only takes about a year to return. So I found that really curious. Mm. Yeah, but they uh, were able to find this older document to say, well, this is why they thought that. Exactly. Which unlocks how they thought the device was supposed to work, even if they got the numbers wrong in the long run. Exactly, exactly. The cycles were complicated by the ancient belief that the Earth was at the center of the solar system. And this geocentric bias required the invention of complex models to account for the retrograde motion of planets. Hmm. This effect is an optical illusion that occurs when faster-moving planets overtake slower counterparts during their orbits around the Sun, but the Greeks devised intricate mechanisms and cycles to find alternate explanations. Hmm. So the synodic cycles revealed for Venus and Saturn enable the team to reverse engineer a system of gears with the right amount of teeth to produce the kind of planetary motion described in the inscriptions. 
complete with retrograde motions that showed up on the front face. That would be a relatively easy task for one planet, but representing all five known planets involved extremely ingenious engineers. Wojcik explains, if you're going to show all the planets, you have to get their positions correct. As you rotate the handle on the side of the mechanism, all these little planets start to move around like clockwork, and occasionally one of them will turn backwards, and then it would move forwards again, and then another one further out will start to turn backwards. But at any one point when you stop the machine, it's got to give you a faithful reproduction of the heavens because that's the purpose of the machine. Yeah. So to recreate this effect in their model, the team deduced the cycles for the other planets based on the Venus and Saturn data, then devised an elaborate system of gears that could reproduce them. And the whole gear drive was meticulously optimized to fit into a small space between the front and black plates. And there's some images of the device in this reconstruction in the original article uh, that I recommend you look up. Because if you've ever seen the Antic Theorem mechanism, it's basically kind of like a crappy little looking wheel. Yeah, like it's covered in rust and stuff. Because it's like, you know, thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. But the reproduction shows that it has an entire case. It almost looks kind of like an old timey telephone box. But the front is this dial with the gems on it and all these rotating sphere pieces. It's really, really gorgeous. And if this is actually what the Greeks made, back then, you would be thinking, holy crap, like that looks like something you would find on Etsy today. You know, right, like it's right. really, it's really impressive. It's yeah, very, exactly. It's very steampunk, but way before steampunk. <laughs> yes, it, it looks like an extremely steampunk device. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, but there's absolutely no steam. Uh, <laughs> so It's just you know, punk. That's what it is. Yeah, just punk as hell. Uh, lots of <laughs> copper. Well, it's orange, you know, it's golden <laughs> colored. But just to underscore how impressive this device is, I mean, to be able to build this thing with gears is mind-blowing to me because Mm -hmm. I've done a little bit of research into astronomy and also astrological views of, you know, geocentric motion and retrogrades. And you could code that because it's all about the Earth and where these other planets are. And you can kind of just like use angles and math to figure that out. But gears? Holy crap. Right. And if you don't know that the Earth's not at the center, you're already working with bad data and yet they made it work anyway. Yeah. That's incredible. Which is just incredible. Incredible. But that does not mean that the artifact has divulged all of its mysteries, not even close. Free, yeah, Freeth, Wojcik, and their colleagues now hope to replicate the full machinery of their model using the technologies available to its Greek creators, which presents both an enormous challenge and an accelerating new chapter in the ongoing saga of the Antic Theorem Mechanism. It is so remarkable in terms of its requirements for accuracy and manufacturing ability that it's out of sync with what we think the Greeks could have achieved, Wojcik said. But we have to accept that this is the way the machine worked, and the Greeks made it. Yeah. Unless it's from outer space, we have to find a way in which the Greeks could have made it. That's the next stage. And the exciting bit is, I think that's the final piece of the jigsaw. Yeah. And it can't be from outer space because they would have known the Earth is not the center. So we can just rule out aliens on that yeah. alone. <laughs> yeah. Although I do have a little bit of a, of a side rant about that, which is that, you know, there was one Greek astronomer around 300 BC who did propose a heliocentric model. It's not like that information was right. not known back then. Uh, they just, it got buried. Right, like they all didn't want to hear it. In the beginning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they had a tendency to murder those guys with hemlock. Like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, something to do with the church and, you know, religion and, and uh-huh. all that jazz. Next link. Next link. This is one of those things that takes something that we take pretty much for granted of the scientific community and show how much we really don't know. You know, we, we've had these we have these narratives that we've established for a lot of history that wasn't recorded. But in fact, it's based on really scant evidence. And all of a sudden we find mm-hmm. a new piece of evidence and everything is changed. So this is about the migration of humans out of Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago. 
And where do we think Mm -hmm. people first emerged? And when did we become Homo sapiens versus other types of hominins? And the established narrative has always been we came out of Africa about 120,000 years ago. We went along the Mm -hmm. Mediterranean coast into the Levant region, which is this sort of Israel, Mm -hmm. Jordan and Lebanon, you know, cradle of civilization kind of area. Cradle of civilization. Right. Mm -hmm. And then only much later, about 50,000 years ago, did further migration take humans into Asia. And the title of this article is Will Asia Rewrite Human History? Because as it turns out, people were in Asia tens and possibly hundreds of thousands of years before we thought. And Mm. they, in fact, have also shown that we probably left Africa quite a bit earlier as well. So now they're thinking Mm. that we left Africa some 200,000 years ago in multiple directions, went straight to Asia, also went to the Levant and lots of other areas. But it's completely changed the timeline and the map of what we thought. So and this is all in really, really recent times. So, for example, in 2016, a team found a finger bone in the Nefu Desert in the Arabian Peninsula was 86,000 years old. So right there, they're like, oh, we're 36,000 years earlier than we thought we were supposed to be. In 2015, they found 47 teeth in a cave in the Hunan province in China that were anywhere from 85,000 to 120,000 years old. What? And in 2018, a team found a bunch of tools in India that were at least 170,000 years old. Wow. So on the one hand, it's like, OK, well, cool. We're constantly adding to our knowledge and we're changing. You know, as soon as we get new data, we change our models. But that's science. You know, there's an important question here of why has Asia been ignored for so long? It's been there. It's not like we couldn't have dug it up earlier. Why is it that we're only just now going like, oh, hey, maybe we should look over there and see <laughs> what there is to see? Uh, And so the article goes into a lot of that. There's a couple of major reasons. Number one, the Bible is kind of a little bit of a, a, you know, confounding thing where people like the Bible and they like the Greek classics and those tend to draw a lot of interest into those areas of the world. Right. And then there's a self-perpetuating cycle where the funding follows the discovery. So once you make a discovery in an area, people want to focus more on that area. They don't want to fund some Mm. trip out to nowhere when you just don't know what you're going to find. And then (sighs) a really critical one is that Culturally, archaeology tends to be a Western discipline, whereas Eastern disciplines tend to focus more on actual records of human tradition and narrative history. So you have Asian countries that generally have a lot more written history than Western Europe does. Mm. We've got written stuff from China going back thousands of years where like we can barely manage to keep stuff from a thousand years ago in Western Europe. But Mm -hmm. it also means that most text scientists are Asian and most archaeologists are white. And so because the archaeologists are white, they go digging in their own homelands, right? Right. And then the fourth major one, obviously, is a little more modern, basically political situations in the current layout of the land, like war in the Middle East or China being generally unwelcoming to any kind of foreigners just digging into their land. That kind of has been a bit of a barrier where even if people did want to go in there, they had a hard time getting actually to where they wanted to go. Sure. Yeah. And so each of these is sort of easing in its own way over time to the point that we're now at this kind of perfect storm of possibility where they're saying, hey, we can go dig here. And oh, my God, look what we're finding. Right. One really interesting thing was they were careful to note that all of these pockets of pre-civilization that they're finding, they are nonetheless not our ancestors. What? Yeah, because DNA analysis, now that they have all the 23andMe's and they've been able to do like some really big population-wide DNA analysis, they've shown conclusively in a number of studies that all modern Eurasians, basically all of Europe and Asia, diverged from the DNA of Africa in a particular window between 60 and 80,000 years ago. So basically, migration Mm. is not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing going on. 
And these earlier groups that came out 200,000 years ago, they sort of died off for whatever reason. They were humans, but their colonies and their tribes didn't survive. Whereas the mm. ones that happened to come out between 60 and 80,000 years ago managed to stay and flourish. Huh. So it's, you know, it, it's a really fascinating look. And they say as well that this counts both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. There's actually quite a bit of the population today that has Neanderthal DNA. I've heard that before. Yes. Yeah. So there was definitely some, some crossbreeding. There was definitely a lot of stuff going on. They say, you know, there's a temptation to imagine a migration is like they bought a ticket and they hopped over to Asia. But realistically, <laughs> you're talking about a colony or a tribe or a group of people who would move maybe 10 kilometers in a generation. You know, so right. it's this slow right. just sort of spread of people. And some of them don't make it. And then maybe there's a big climate catastrophe and a whole lot of them don't make it. And they just have to kind of mm -hmm. go back to the source and have people keep on moving outward. Oh, that's fascinating yeah. to think that there could be so many more discoveries to be made in Asia for that. Yeah. And that's what they're saying is basically it's this huge, huge opportunity right now where it's never really been looked at before. And now we have so many better tools than we've had in the past. We're able to jump right. right into this, scope the whole thing out with, I don't know what you'd call it, like an MRI for the ground, basically. <laughs> you can mm -hmm. look really deep. And so you don't have to dig like they did in the past where you have to really just dig and see what you find. Now they can sort of pick these hot spots and immediately start mm. finding really cool stuff. Right. It's almost kind of like ground sonar where right. you're able to kind of like use different sort of sound waves to keep things intact, but be able to image and map them without disturbing and destroying it all. Right. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why China is being a little more open than they have been in the past is you're not causing environmental havoc. You don't have these people crawling all over the land and digging everything up. They're like, no, we just want right. to come in, take a quick look. And if there's something, then, you know, we'll dig it up. But otherwise, we'll leave you alone. And it seems like it's it's a confluence of technology and culture that's working out pretty well. How cool. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many different organizations and schools of thought that are just thrilled at the idea of upending our narrative of oh, human history. It, it, <laughs> it needs a little upending. I, it's due for it, I think. Super fair. <laughs> Super fair. Yep. yep. Next link. Next link. Well, this one is uh, a little bit sad, but overdue. It's a article from astronomy.com about a place that I bet you've never heard of called Nabta Playa. Am I right? Never heard of Ooh, it? No, but it sounds like, mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. there like a Burning Man event that they have there? <laughs> there is not. Uh, it is in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But comparatively, I imagine everyone has heard of Stonehenge, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. This is basically a Stonehenge. This is a stone circle that is connected to the motion of the stars. It's an early astronomical calendar created by a group of people that lived in that part of the world several thousand years ago. In fact, more than 7,000 years ago, which is a good 1,500 to 2,000 years older than Stonehenge. Huh. So the article, on the one hand, it's going into like, let's talk about Napta Playa. It's really cool. But also there's a little bit of a, why are we not talking about this thing? Why are we so centered on Stonehenge? Which is frankly, kind of not that special. There's actually, they said 35,000 megalith structures in Europe alone. And Stonehenge is not the oldest. It's not the biggest. It's just sort of the one that we've all attached this cultural significance to. But huh. Nabda Playa is actually really cool. Uh, it was discovered in 1973, which is pretty relatively late. And it wasn't understood as an astronomical calendar until 1998. Because, first of all, it was kind of halfway buried under sand when they found it. And also because of the typical, you know, we just don't study things in that part of the world with the same vigor that we do in the Western world. And so when this paper came out in 1998... Even then, they still called it the Stonehenge of the Sahara, 
when really we should be saying that Stonehenge is the Napta Playa of England. Yeah, um, yeah. But since then, they have done a lot of research into it, and they've learned a lot about the culture of the people who build it. They say they were Bedouin nomads who used several stone circle locations, actually, to sort of navigate the desert in this cycle based on the availability of water throughout the year. You know, Nabta Playa was actually pretty dry most of the year, but then when the summer monsoon season came, it would have a reliable source of water for about four months. And so mm. they were they were traveling with the sources of the water, and they built stone circles everywhere they went to kind of get them back to each successive one. One of the archaeologists working on the project noted that his modern Bedouin guide, while he's, you know, going out into the Sahara, digging all day, and then kind of coming back to camp, the guide was even today still using the stars to navigate them back to their camp in the dark by sticking his head out the car window while they drove. So, I mean, this is clearly something that has been passed on and is still being used today by people yeah. who simply do not have any need for GPS. They've got their stars. <laughs> well, I mean, all of these figures and structures were because of ancient aliens anyway, right? Right. Well, and that was one of the things they said is a bit of a problem because, well, <laughs> while they would love to study some of this stuff, they kind of get grouped in with the people who are, you know, talking about aliens. And so it's actually kind of hard to get grants to study this mm. in the astronomical mm -hmm. connections because everyone's like, that gets a little dicey. I don't know if we want to go that far. We're not sure what you're going to try to say with this research. Yeah. So, it, you know, like a lot of things being studied in Africa right now, it's changing the narrative of where this stuff originally came from, how these cultures moved around. And at any rate, they should definitely be given credit for making a stone circle thousands of years earlier than some of the ones that we sort of revere today as being very cool. Yeah. I mean, even if it isn't, you know, like if they're having trouble getting grant money because of the association with ancient aliens types, you know, I'm sure that our new system of funding things, a.k.a. GoFundMe. That's true. Can come to the rescue and get some answers for us, That's right? right? Use the alien lovers, man. Don't shun them. Just say, yeah, right? give me your money and uh, I'll get you the answers you get. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.